So please let yourself come in and find a way to sit that's at ease and comfortable. So that in some way the listening um, is a part of the meditation, um, as is the breath that moves through you, or the sounds, or thoughts, and feelings. Last Monday night, I know, for those of you who are here, that Ed Brown came to teach. I heard he was wonderful. I actually also understand that both Ed and Guy came. Um, They were so desirous of teaching you. You're such a desirable group that people are lining up. Maybe we should have one talk in the dining hall and one here, kind of touring Dharma Center or something. Anyway, this evening I would like to speak about the wedding of body and spirit. Begin with an African story. Once upon a time, there was a man who had a herd of cows, and he loved his cows. And every morning and evening, he would praise them. He would praise them for the amount of creamy milk that they were giving, and he would praise them for their beauty. But one morning, he began to notice that the amount of milk they were giving had lessened. In fact, it lessened throughout the week. Each day it got a little bit less, so he decided one night maybe he should stay up and see what was going on with these cows. So he stayed out with them until midnight. He happened to look up at the stars and saw one star that seemed to be getting larger. It was, and the light got stronger as the star came down to the earth, came straight down toward his cow pasture and stopped a few feet from him in the form of a great ball of light. And inside the light, there was a luminous woman. And as soon as her toes touched the earth, the light disappeared. Interesting moment. And she stood there like an ordinary woman, as soon as she touched the earth. And he said to you, are you the one who has been stealing milk from my cows? Yes, she said, my sisters and I like the milk from your cows very much. And he said, I'm glad you like my cows. You are very beautiful, I see. And so this is what I want to say. If you would marry me, we could live together. And I will never hit you. And you won't have to take care of the cows all of the time. I will take care of them part of the time myself. Will you marry me? This is kind of a pretty straightforward offer, the old kind. I won't hit you and we can split taking care of the cows. It's kind of, you know, it's how marriage was. Probably still is, but... So she thought about it. And she said, yes, I will, but there's one condition. I've brought this basket with me and I want you to agree that you will never look into this basket. You must never look into it, no matter how long we are married. Do you agree to that? And he looked at her, and she was indeed fair, and he said, of course, I will. I do, I shall. (laughs) And so they were married. You know how these stories go. And they lived very well, happily together for a short time or a long time. (laughs) And then one day, when she was out taking her turn herding the cows, 
he happened to notice the basket standing in the corner of his house. And he said to himself, well, you know, she is my wife, and so it could be considered to be my basket. After all, this is my house. The basket is in my house. And after he said this, he walked over and opened the basket. And then he began to laugh. He laughed very loud. There's nothing in the basket. There is nothing in the basket. There's absolutely nothing in this basket. There's nothing there. And he kept saying these words and laughing so loud that his wife heard him and wandered back to the house, as happens. You know how it is. And she came in and she said, Have you opened the basket? And he began laughing out loud again. I did. He said, I opened the basket and there is nothing in it. There is nothing in the basket. There's nothing inside the basket. Absolutely nothing. And he laughed and laughed. And she looked at him and her face changed. And she said, I have to leave now. I'm sorry to say. I must go back. For you had promised not to open it and you have. And he said, don't go. Please don't go. Don't leave me. And she said, I have to go back now for what I brought with me in the basket was spirit. And it's so like human beings to think that the spirit is nothing. And then she looked at him a moment and smiled and was gone. So that's the story. Now as one listens to the story, you can, one kind of way of listening is you can find yourself in the story. You might be the cows giving milk, <laughs> it's possible, or the one tending them, or the night sky, or the stars that come down, you know, or the one who breaks the promise, or the one whose promise has been broken. Now the story tells the truth, tells a number of truths. One of the truths that tells is about nothing in the basket. And the truth that it tells is that everything is wedded to nothing. That everything is born or comes out of this great emptiness, the great pregnant void it is sometimes called, that which was before we were born and out of which all things appear. And it's a wonderful thing to remember and understand this, that things appear out of something. They do it all the time. Where do your thoughts come from? Have you noticed? They arise, pictures, images, ideas, plans, fears, all those things, hopes. And then where do they go? They vanish, as did yesterday and the day before, and last year in the 1980s with it. Everything comes out of nothing, and so they're wedded together. Now in the monastery, we used to talk about this all the time. The monks knew it. We, we tend to forget it. Um, I remember, actually, this is kind of a funny incident. When I was living first in the forest monastery in Southeast Asia, the only other American who was there in those early years was a man named uh, Ajahn Sumedho who's become the abbot of a big monastery in England and many other monasteries in America, who was a rather remarkable person already in the first few years in the monastery. One could sense a great deal of wisdom and steadiness and compassion in his being. So we had a mutual friend who used to come visit us from Bangkok, a man who was the psychiatrist at the American Embassy 
and he would come, I think, partly to get out of trying to psychoanalyze all the people in the State Department and get some relief from that in the monastery, and because he was interested in Buddhism. And he would watch us. And one day, I remember he asked Ajahn Sumedho, I'm so curious about how your mind works. You seem so happy as a monk. You seem so contented. He said, could I give you a couple of psychological tests? Just, I'm so curious to see what... So he gave him or us, I can't, it's hard to remember, the MMPI, you know, Minnesota Multiphasic Inventory, with all these 400 questions that you check off in different ways. And now one of the questions in the MMPI is about, somewhere in there, if I remember correctly, is about your sex life, right? And it's kind of a, a series of categories how is your sex life, or something like that, you know? And it can be miserable, fair, okay, um, good, excellent, or perfect. You can kind of check one. <laughs> so when Dr. Burns, this was Doug Burns, was scoring the test and looking at the answers, he was amazed when he came to that question, because Sumedho had checked perfect. And he came to him and he said, you know, I've given this test to many, many people and no one has ever checked perfect before <laughs> on that question. <laughs> ah, so the monks knew that we are wedded to something already that is beautiful. Everything is wedded to nothing. The Heart Sutra, which is chanted pretty much every day in many, many Zen centers and various other temples, um, begins in some version or other. Thus I have heard the Buddha dwelt at Vulture's Peak together with a Sangha of 100,000 monks and nuns and 70,000 bodhisattvas. And at that time, the bodhisattva Avalokiteshvara arose from her seat and facing the assembly went to the Buddha, joined her palms and began to expound the Holy Dharma. And part of what she said was that form is not different from emptiness and emptiness is not different from form. That which is form is empty, and that which is emptiness, form. Feelings, perceptions, mental formations, and consciousness itself are like this. That which is consciousness is empty, and that which is emptiness gives rise to consciousness. These experiences, these dharmas, these elements are marked with emptiness, neither arising nor ceasing, neither tainted nor pure, neither increasing nor decreasing. Now, in a materialistic culture, which is the basic religion of our era and our time, our perception can become terribly one-sided, filled with the things that we have to do or make or care for, our responsibilities, our cows, our computers, they're kind of the same, our mortgage, the stock market, it doesn't matter, all those things of life. And in the things, we forget the power of the mind, the state of the heart, the consciousness that moves beyond within, that informs, that gives rise or birth to all of this. Rabindranath Tagore, the Indian sage and poet, he said, we imagine that our mind is a mirror, that it is more or less accurately reflecting what is happening outside of us. But on the contrary, our mind itself is the principal element of creation. 
It doesn't happen to us, it happens through us. So again, the text of the Dhammapada, the, one of the, the very first verse of the collected sayings of the Buddha, begins with phrases like these, all is mind made, all that we are arises with thoughts, with mind. With our thoughts we create our world. Speak or act with an impure mind or heart, and trouble will follow you as surely as the wheel follows the oxen that draws the cart. All is mind made. All that we are arises with our thoughts. With our thoughts and heart we create the world. Speak or act with a pure mind and heart, and happiness will follow you as closely as your shadow, as unshakable. So when we come to sit in meditation, as we do Monday nights or other times, we sit to awaken to that which was in the basket, to listen to the state of the heart behind all of the events of the day and all of the things that we tend to to reconnect with that which is timeless, the reality of the spirit that's called our true nature, our original nature, the nature of mind, to rest in this truth. So one text, the Book of Great Liberation, says, if one would understand this mind, one must look directly into it. And in looking at the mind in its true state, it is found to be quite understandable, although invisible. In its true state, mind is naked, immaculate, not made of anything, being of the voidness, clear, vacuous, transparent, timeless, containing all things, yet not limited by them. Rest in this true nature. To know if this is so or not, look within your own mind. So part of the meditation is a returning to that place of stillness or silence where we can feel the heart and the consciousness that moves and generates the actions and images and life that comes through us. Understand that and rest in the place of knowing place of compassion or wisdom that's there within us when we're not complicated and conflicted. Yet if we look at the instructions in this practice of mindfulness, it is not just the basket or that spirit in the basket that we're invited to attend to, but the cows as well. As the poet Rumi said, sometimes we put the saddlebags on Jesus and let the donkey run loose in the streets, sort of have it backwards somehow. For some who come to spiritual life, there's a wish or desire, or maybe it's easy to forget the world of form, to get out of it, to forget the body. And then you end up at best with what's called, uh, what one person called, disembodied clarity. <laughs> you know what I mean? The Buddha said in 
trying to give instructions that were helpful to people to awaken, he said, it is within this fathom-long body and mind that all the dharmas, all the teachings can be found. Suffering and the end of suffering, bondage and freedom, confusion and compassion, all here within this body and mind. And therefore, in the practice of attention or awakening, one studies what's called namarupa. Namarupa is the Sanskrit words sometimes translated as name and form. But a better translation is mind and matter. And perhaps even a better one is consciousness and embodiment. We begin to notice the nature of the mind and heart of consciousness itself, and then the embodiment and form. And both of those are necessary, this wedding of body and spirit, to become free, to awaken, to open. They each need respect for the truth of their, of their existence is that they co-arise, they come together. Each arises depending, interdepending on the other. So I'll tell you a story. There is a woman, disciple of a great uh, guru in India, who I also studied with, Nisargadat, wonderful sage in uh, Bombay. And she, upon, after some years of studying Advaita Vedanta, the non-duality with him, came back to this country and began to teach and work on the writings and the expression of the non-dual and became kind of a spiritual teacher to some. Um, and as she grew older, she um, came down with emphysema because she smoked all the time. Her teacher in India, um, also smoked, so there was some lineage there. <laughs> he smoked these little Indian beadies, he had a little beady shop, and she smoked, and she kept smoking, didn't matter what. The teachings that she gave were that you are not the body. These are the spirit teachings, that who you really are is not this body, you just rent this body, just have it for a certain time. Who are you really before you're born, after you die? Can you find that truth? It's neither this body nor all those thoughts that you call mind, but something prior to that, this spirit that's timeless. So that was her teachings. As she got sicker with emphysema and older, um, her children, who were grown, came to take care of her, as other people had been taking care of her. And she was giving her spiritual teachings and getting sicker and still smoking anyway and whatever. And it got to be very difficult because she was quite ill and was being dragged out as illness can be and everyone was taking care of her and she said, enough of this already, I'm not the body. I'm ready to die. This is, I don't need to kind of drag this out and take, you know, all the energy of my children and so forth. So she collected all the pills that her doctor had given her, enough to um, finish her body and um, called her children and close friends, disciples together, and did a kind of last goodbyes and so forth, and then took them all to make a spiritual exit. Well, as the story was told to me anyway, 15 hours later she awoke um, <laughs> to her own dismay. And as it turned out to the dismay of her children and the people around her, um, they were disconcerted at first. You know, and then somehow, as the story was told, 
some of the problems that were not spoken about before she died seemed to come out in the conflict of her re-arising <laughs> as she did. And it turned out that they, in some fashion or other, expressed uh, frustration that she, they had seen her as this spiritual teacher, you are not the body, but here you are in your back, and you are in your body, and not only that, you're our mother, you know, and um, maybe you need to tend to your body and your mothering and various other things. I don't know what it was. I wouldn't presume to speak for the family, but apparently they had a number of things to work out (laughs) that weren't just you are not the body. And it took a while to do that in a respectful way before she could die again. To awaken to the spirit, the spirit in that basket, does not mean to leave. This is the place of the spirit. And you'll notice in the story that even the stars come down here for milk. Even the stars want to come down and taste the milk of this place. A poem to you, for you, from um, Antonio Machado. The wind, one brilliant day, called to my soul with an odor of jasmine. In return for the odor of my jasmine, I'd like all the odor of your roses. I have no roses. All the flowers in my garden are dead. Well then, said the wind, I'll take the withered petals and the yellow leaves and the waters of the fountain. The wind left, and I wept, and I said to myself, What have you done with the garden that was entrusted to you? This is the place of the spirit. Even the stars come down to drink its milk. We are here in this embodied mystery. And to be embodied, is to live within a certain suffering and beauty, birth and aging and sickness, messiness and complexity, art and love, irony, humor, melancholy, the richness of theater, of tragedy and comedy. This is embodiment, the inescapable opposite. And one might think that that spirit in that basket is somehow the world of perfection, of cool, harmonious, not having to deal with anything. But why did the stars come down? Why was that basket brought here? For the truth is that this life that's given to us is this life and not some other. And we have to deal with Alberto Perez who is the first um, child, a boy, to be killed and murdered in Berkeley school system. I guess it was last week, stabbed to death, the first time that happened in Berkeley. And um, the 10-year-old girl who was raped in the canal district here in San Rafael. We have to deal with injustice and racism and weddings and divorces, and wealth and poverty in this ever-changing world of form. 
This is where we live. Can we hold this all as our place of practice? Even the difficulties, maybe especially the difficulties. This is from Thich Nhat Hanh. He says, being awake with the kind of suffering that we encountered during the war can heal us of some of the suffering we experience when our lives are not very meaningful or useful. For when you confront the kinds of difficulties we faced during the war, you see that you can be a source of compassion and a help to many suffering people. And in that intense suffering, you feel a kind of relief and joy within yourself because you know that you can be an instrument of compassion. Understanding such intense suffering and realizing even a moment of compassion in the midst of it, you become a joyful person, even if your life is very hard. So we are here in this embodied mystery and not asked to leave it. The idea of sacred attention, which is another word for mindfulness, for the respect that we pay to our bodies, our breath, the sounds, the world around us. The idea of sacred attention in spiritual life is not to hurry up and fix things, like Ed Brown talked about last week, not to try and fix it all up and make it perfect nor can we afford to ignore problems or ignore the death of Alberto Perez or so many other children this week and last week. The idea is to awaken to what is and to illuminate that with a sacred attention, to find the basket of spirit that is here already. How do we find it? Another poem for you from Rumi called Love Dogs. One night a man was crying, Allah, 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 Allah. His lips grew sweet with the praising until a cynic said, So, I've heard you calling out, but have you ever gotten any response? The man had no answer to that. He quit praying and fell into a confused sleep. He dreamed he saw Kadir, the guide of souls, in a thick green foliage. Why did you stop praising and praying? Because I've never heard anything back. This longing you express is the return message. The grief you cry out from draws you toward union. Your pure sadness that wants help is the secret cup. Listen to the moan of a dog for its master. The whining is their connection. There are love dogs no one knows the names of everywhere. Give your life to become one of them. You know how roomy he is. He's happy even in his misery and longing, isn't he? 
And yet this longing, this asking, this thing in us that wakes up and says, well, what should I do? How should I respond? This love, this very messy life, is the spirit in us waking up, is the message, carries the spirit. To open to this, which is always here in us, this ever-present mystery, is the simple thing that spiritual life is about. And the practices, certainly within this tradition of the elders, are really reminders of this basket, the starlight, this embodied mystery. For me, it's my sitting practice. For many of you, it's one of the practices I do, just to come back and remember. But it's also a Monday night Dharma talk is my practice. 13 years of having to say something. <laughs> and sometimes I don't have anything to say, you know. It's rare, I understand. But <laughs> um, and not only to say something, but to say something that's, that's new, even if it's the old word somehow, that it's new in spirit. Um, that it's not a repeat, because it has to be alive. And so my practice is to somehow find something that's alive each time in myself. There was a story I heard this weekend at a workshop or a conference with Michael Mead and Robert Bly and James Hillman in the city on inspiration and learning. It was an old Ethiopian story. I won't tell the whole story, but one of the images in it had a bored king on the plains of Ethiopia sitting by a fire that was made by his servant in the soldiers around, thinking what would interest him. And he looked up and saw this huge stone mountain in the distance. And he said, I wonder if somebody could climb that mountain and spend a whole night on the top of it without a fire, without clothes, in the freezing cold, and survive that. And the servant said he would be a fool to do so, anyone who did such a thing. The king said, perhaps a fool, but suppose perhaps that it was a servant who was offered their freedom and land and a hut and herd animals, cows. Might a servant be interested to try this? And of course, the story, the servant takes him up on the bargain and goes up on the mountain. But before he does, he's afraid that he'll die. So he goes to see the old man in the village who leans against the tree and has seen so many things, the elder in the village. And he says, I have a predicament tomorrow night. I'm to go on up on top of the mountain. Can you help me? And the elder said, I can. He said, you go up there. You have to leave your clothing with the soldiers at the bottom and climb up and stand there all night. And I, I will climb a hill far across the valley and I will build a fire there. And you train your eye on that fire far across the valley and keep that in your vision, that fire. And if you do, it will sustain you through the night. So he climbed this mountain, left his clothes with the soldiers, freezing cold. The stones were already cold under his feet as the sun was going down and he was climbing. You know how it is in the high mountains. And there he was shivering and he trained his eye on that light in the far distance. And even when the clouds came, it said in that story, he then trained his eye or his heart on the memory of that fire that he had seen in the distance. And so it sustained him through the night until he came back down. 
Now the story doesn't end there, it goes on. There are some more difficulties he has to face. But we'll leave it at this moment and maybe I'll tell you more of it another night. <laughs> if you come back. <laughs> mm. The practice of this attention, the attention of the heart, of sacred attention, is a kind of tending attending to our breath. We call it attending, but it's really attending like the tending of a fire. To inhabit, to illuminate, to encourage us to tend to this life that we've been given in a conscious and a kind and a beautiful way, so that it shows us its life, its light, its life. And the heart practice of mindfulness isn't about some goal of perfecting ourselves. You know, that's ridiculous. <laughs> Haven't you noticed? <laughs> but rather, it is finding this genuine presence with this embodied spirit within which we live, this body and mind. Now, in the Buddha's way, there are three trainings of this vision of that sacred fire that carries us, of this attention. The first training, which we talk about, is in Sanskrit called sila, shila, which means wise conduct or virtuous action or not harming. It's the tending to our speech and actions, tending with a caring way to our words, to our goods, to the community around us, to not create harm or injustice, to speak what's true and act what is true, kind. And with the practice of such respect, of sacred attention to our words and our actions and our deeds, all the forms around us become illuminated, they become luminous, they become filled with spirit. They do. Here we were, those of you who came a week or so ago when Thich Nhat Hanh was here at Spirit Rock, 2,500 people, and in the afternoon we did the mindful eating of the apple, led by uh, Wendy from, from Green Gulch, this wonderful meditation of eating an apple. and You could hear 2,500 <laughs> mouths crunching. You know, this green apple, the teeth crunching, and smell apple wafting across the meadow. And in that apple, that afternoon with the sun getting a bit lower toward the horizon, and some evening breezes coming in from the ocean, and the incredible stillness that was more palpable and strong because 2,500 people were there being silent than if they had not been there. The stillness was so deep. And then you heard all these people bite into this apple in that stillness. It was as if it was the apple from the Garden of Eden. You know, it was the golden apple from all those fairy tales. It was the apple that represented all the fruit of the earth, of which you are one of those fruit. In fact, that fruit is in you, most of you who ate that apple. It's now part of you in your fingers and toes. And when we bring this quality of attention, when we've learned it, to tend to our words and our actions, like eating the apple, the form around us 
becomes luminous. It shows its spirit. It's a beautiful way to move through the world. So this is the first of these trainings in conduct that is mindful, attentive. The second of these trainings is the sacred attention or mindfulness, mindfulness of mind and body together, which is called samadhi, one of its words, or steadiness or unity. And that's the attention that gathers together body and mind, that unifies the heart and the mind and body together with our breathing, with a step, with the awareness of our thought that comes so present within our experience that we start to rest and calm and a kind of wholeness and joy and pleasure comes because we're not running to in ten directions. We are just here in ourselves. That simple thing of following the breath is the first step in that. And it opens us. It has real pleasure in it. There's tremendous pleasure that comes in just being here instead of scattered. W.S. Merwin writes in this way, as a poet and a meditator, I say to my breath once again, little breath, come from in front of me, go away behind me, row me quietly now as far as you can, for I am an abyss that I am trying to cross. And so this simple practice of bringing ourselves together in a moment, this breath, this feeling, this step of the body. And so just as with sila, with respectful attention to the world around, the world becomes luminous. With samadhi, we become luminous. There becomes a light inside with this stillness and wholeness. And it's quite literal at times when it's strong. The body literally feels, fills with light. We'll talk about that more some other night. Then finally, this attention, mindfulness or sacred attention. The third of these practices is panya or prajna, which is our awakening of innate wisdom. In presence, in stillness, in listening deeply, in sensing deeply or seeing deeply, we see the body and consciousness is interconnected. Form is emptiness. Emptiness is form. And the small sense of self opens to the truth of all things as interbeing. The apple and the rain that fell on that apple tree is a part of us as much as our breath, which comes from the trees of the Amazon and from our mother and grandmother and all the grandmothers before them. Wisteria vines thrive in poor soil. Their secret is something called rhizobia. They are microscopic bugs that live underground in little knots on the roots. They suck nitrogen right out of the soil and turn it into fertilizer for the plants. They're not part of the plant. They're separate little creatures 
but they always live with it, a kind of underground railroad moving secretly up and down the roots. There's a whole invisible system for helping out the plant that you'd never guess was there. It's just the same with us as people, you know. The wisteria vines on their own would barely get by, but put them together with rhizobia and they make miracles. That's from Barbara Kingsolver. Wisdom begins to see this is so and rest in a kind of grace or trust or acceptance of life where we respond when necessary, but our heart is at ease because we're here, we're home. Wisdom unites the worlds. It is a wedding of body and spirit. It is a seeing that we have the same last name as the apple tree and the redwood trees. Now a Zen teacher who is a friend of mine told me a story recently about a woman that he worked with who had done meditation for quite a long time and was quite mature in some ways in her spiritual practice. And she was tending to her father as he was dying. And there was a lot of grief because she loved him and she had to care for him and, you know, lift him up and put him down and clean him and do the all, all the things where the child becomes the parent and the parent becomes the child again that so many of us have had to do or will have to do. And she was grieving and he said he knew her well and there was one kind of support he could give her which would be to hold her and comfort her in her grief. But he had already done that plenty and she knew it. She knew that he loved her and she was fine with her grief. So instead he said, no. I said this was the moment to ask for something more of her. And I gave her the koan, the question to answer as she came to see me again and again. Where is your father? She would come in and say, well, he's lying sick in bed. Ring the bell and say, that's not the answer and send her out. Next time, where is your father? As she tended him as he was sick, as she tended him as he died, where is your father? As she went to the funeral, where is your father? In the weeks after her father passed, where is your father? Again and again. And then one day she came, some weeks later, into the Zen hall and did her sittings. In an impeccable way, he could see something had happened. And then she came into the interview again, bowed, and he said, where is your father? And she leapt up after her bow from where she was sitting and threw her arms out and began to dance and said, I am my father. And he said it wasn't genetics and it wasn't the blood. It was that knowing in her being that she was her father and that he could never leave her and that nothing can ever leave us in that place in the heart. We realize that we are the basket that contains that spirit. This is from Kabir. He says, where are you, Kabir? Inside this clay jug, that's this body, there are canyons and pine mountains and the maker of canyons and pine mountains. 
all seven oceans are inside and hundreds of millions of stars. The acid that tests gold is there and the one who judges jewels and the music from the strings no one touches and the source of all water inside this clay jug. So there is a wedding, a coming together that this mindful presence, this simple act of attention can bring when it honors body and spirit, when it honors the 10,000 joys and sorrows of life, and when just this fathom-long body and mind within this is found all the dharma, suffering and the end of suffering, joy, freedom, and when our life is awakened by this, even in a moment, in a day, in a walk in the mountains, in a moment of tenderness with another person, from that we are illuminated and we enter the marketplace and the shops and politics and arts with a kind of freedom, a wise and loving heart. We find that freedom that is not going forward and not going backwards and not standing still. So let's sit for a moment. That's a koan from my teacher. Where is that place that is not going forward, not going backward, and not standing still? I'll collect answers later. As you sit quietly, a few reflections. First, reflect on whether it is the basket or the cows that need tending in your life, whether it is this earth body or the spirit that asks for your attention. And then a second simple reflection. Reflect on your practice. What is your practice? What is that which steadies your heart, returns you back to the sacred? Not to perfect yourself, but to awaken this beauty in you, this love, this connectedness with life.
So for a few minutes, a question or two for you, and then we'll end with a chant. Um, when you reflected inside, what is your practice? What nourishes your heart and kind of reawakens your spirit, helps you tend that which is sacred in your life? And um, what was asking for attention, the cows or the basket? What did you find? Please. Both the cows in the basket have claims on you, huh? Yeah. Ah, yes. If, if I have found in the past that if I neglect either one, um, then the other suffers. That without um, taking care of the spirit, the cows also go Lovely. So how do you do it? So how, how do I do it? Well, as much as one can, and the, the two things that came to mind first in order to connect, both, both of them are both spiritual and human, I think. One is um, being in nature is a way of Mm-hmm. and uh, doing what I can and needs to be done for and with the neglected people in this country. And Being in nature and standing with the poor. Could you hear her over there? Yes? Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Someone else, what is your practice? Yes? Similar. Being Similar. In nature, being being in out in nature, in the woods, in the mountains, yes. Um, sitting, absolutely. And sitting in meditation. And service. And service. What kind of service? Um, uh, service here. Hmm. Service professionally. Um, service, service here. Service to my family. Service to my family. Service as a nurse, as a midwife, catching babies. And definitely the cows are calling. Time with, with the basket. It's time to spend enough time with the basket. It's time to milk the cows. I see. Thank you. Someone else, your practice. Please. Well, the thing that's most, that it's just happening most often for me right now is, uh, I mean, aside from my relationship as spiritual practice and work as spiritual practice, but it seems lately, after I get off of work, I just really want to go home and chop wood. And I have a huge <laughs> pile of wood at home, of unsplit logs. And I just love going out there. My body loves it, my soul mm. loves it. And, and so I go home and I just chop wood. I go home and I chop wood. This is the Zen answer. Right? <laughs> oh. My body loves it and my soul loves it. 
Yeah, and then you'll have all that wood for the winter, huh? For El Nino. Thank you. Thank you. One more? Please. Working with children, playing the piano is a great What's the first one? Working with children. Yeah. You work with silent children. Yes. Uh. And then playing, you said the other is playing the piano? Yes. Making music. Uh, so working with silence in children, silent children, then playing the piano, making music. You know, in India, when you meet a person, um, the greetings in India between people after the namaste or honoring the divine within you, people don't say, what do you do in India? It's just not the greeting. Partly because no one does anything in India. <laughs> That's not true, but it's just not the cultural obsession that it is here. And if a question is asked, it might be, you know, what village do you come from? Kind of what, where's your family from? Or more often than not, it's what form of God do you worship? Is it through service? Is it Shiva or Krishna? Is it um, Akali or Durga, you know, or Rama? Um, how do you worship in this life? Imagine if we met people and asked, how do you worship, instead of what do you do? Ah, oh, what a question, huh? That's really the question we're talking about tonight. How do you worship in your life? So um, let's end with a chant. Um, I have a little note here that one person uh, needs a ride to San Francisco. Is there anyone who can offer a ride to San Francisco this evening? Would you come up afterward and meet him here? Thank you for that. Um, the chant we'll do is one we've done on some other evenings. Again, in India, as you, as you greet someone, you put your hands together as if in a prayer, and you say namaste in <coughs> Hindi, for example which comes from the root word in Sanskrit, namo, uh, which means I bow to or I honor, I honor the sacred within you. And namo is the first word of many of the great um, uh, Buddhist texts. Before anything begins, there's a bow. Uh, it really brings together body and spirit or heart in a kind of um, loving attention, namo. So I'd like us to chant Namo for some time. And you can think of that which you would love to bow to, your own body, this mysterious embodiment of humanity, those around you, the people you love, the people you have trouble with, it's good to bow to them, you know, for thickening the plot of your life. Um, the ancestors, the animals of the forest, whatever you wish to. So we'll chant for a bit. You can imagine your bows. Namo
if you can. times really sing na filled with a sacred attention to this body and spirit. And may you keep that fire, even if it's in the distance, or the memory of the fire inside, alive within you. Thank you. See you again. Drive politely as you leave. It's a lot of cars out there. <laughs>